welcome back for a new season of The Last Word, the true life podcast that asks, what's the significance of a person's dying words and their impact on those left behind? Last time I spoke about deathbed confessions, public deaths, bizarre mishaps, and tragic accidents. In season two, I'm focused on a specific group, athletes. Gifted individuals, often young, whose talents thrust them into the spotlight. Did their gifts lead to early deaths? Were the lines blurred by the intoxicating mix of arrogance, wealth, and early success? Some died in service of others. Their fame enabled them to give back, often in big ways. There are suicides, which are always difficult to understand, and too many murders. Some were victims of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Others ignored the risks and it cost them their lives. As always, these topics can be dark and disturbing and may not be suitable for young or sensitive listeners. I'm your host, Sarah Faith. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and now on Vocal. Be sure to check the show notes for those links. And if you enjoy the episode, please share it with someone who may enjoy it also. When we come back, we will dive into our first story about a young baseball player. Stay with us. Now, back to the story. The athletes in these stories have something in common. None of them live to see 40. When we look closely at individuals who received an extra helping of talent, A pattern of early demise seems present. This raises an important question. Did their gifts or their lifestyles lead to an early demise? The average life expectancy for a man in the U.S. is 75.6 years and 80.8 years for women. I want to point out that this data does not include the current pandemic. Athletes are in a separate group, however. Evolutionary psychologist Gil Green Gross explains the life expectancy for athletes in his article for Psychology Today. Quote, Athletes die at a younger age compared to other famous people. One possible explanation for the relatively short life expectancy of athletes is that being a professional athlete nowadays is not the healthiest thing to do. The competitiveness involved in professional sports can cause high levels of stress, which itself is not healthy. Other risk factors include the use of performance-enhancing drugs, injuries, and the long-term effect of concussions in some sports. Another explanation for the relatively shorter life of professional athletes is what happens after they retire. Athletes have relatively short careers compared to other professions and reach their peak early in their lives. Life after retirement could be quite frustrating without the thrills of the game and the fame that accompanies it. This might lead to more depression, drug and alcohol addictions, and even bankruptcy. All have adverse effects on health. star Nick Adenhart was a pitcher for the Angels. The six-foot-three right-hander from Maryland made his Major League Baseball pitching debut at the tender age of 22. 
April 9, 2009, hours after pitching six innings with no hits, Nick and a group of friends were driving to a country and western dance club when their car was struck at an intersection. A drunk driver in a minivan blew through a red light at 65 miles per hour and struck the car in which Nick was a passenger, sending it into a telephone pole. The driver of that Mitsubishi Eclipse was Cal State cheerleader Courtney Stewart and passenger Henry Pearson, 25. She was pronounced dead at the scene, as well as Henry. Nick and another passenger, John Wilhite, 24-year-old former catcher for Cal State Titans and journalism graduate from Arizona State, were taken to a nearby hospital in Irvine. Nick was pronounced dead. Wilhite suffered internal decapitation from the impact, along with numerous severe injuries. Six days after the crash, surgeons worked for five hours reattaching his skull to his spine. He was the only survivor. The driver of the minivan that blew through the red light was Andrew Thomas Gallo. He was arrested the following month and charged with three counts of murder, three counts of felony hit and run, driving under the influence and causing injury, driving while intoxicated. He tested three times the legal limit two hours after the crash, driving on a suspended license. Following a two-week jury trial in September of 2010, Gallo was convicted on three counts of second-degree murder, two counts of driving under the influence, which resulted in great bodily injury, one count of felony hit-and-run. On December 22, 2010, Gallo was sentenced to 51 years to life. Retired relief pitcher Kevin Jepson wondered what his teammate might have achieved. Nick was such a good talent. He had a, such an unbelievable potential. There was an all-star game or a Cy Young award in his future. What kind of career would Nick have had in baseball? I'm sure it would have been a great one. When we come back, I'll dive into a true crime story with a bizarre twist. And now back to the show. Our next young athlete was born and raised in Southern California. Star of the boys golf team, Erica Blasberg quickly rose through the ranks to become the number one ranked college player her freshman year at the University of Arizona. In 2002, she won the Rolex Tournament of Champions. In 2004, she left college and turned pro. She capitalized on her good looks and accepted an endorsement deal from Puma, which was followed by other endorsement deals. As a golf pro, she struggled to reach the same heights in professional golf arena that she had enjoyed in college. In 2010, Erica was living in Henderson, Nevada at Anthem Country Club. May 7, 2010, Erica and married physician Thomas Hess played golf at Southern Highlands Golf Club outside Las Vegas. Her friend Jay Beckman ran into her while golfing. Later, he said, she was making fun of my shirt. She seemed fine. She seemed normal. She seemed like Erica. Later, Erica and Hess were seen in a hotel lounge watching a sports event on TV and sharing intimate touches. The next day, Hess purchased a prepaid cell phone. The only person he called was Erica. The next day, he went to her home. 
When he left at 9 p.m., he said Erica was drunk. At 3.30 a.m., Erica placed a call to Hess that went unanswered. Beginning at 5.13 a.m., Hess placed eight calls to Erica that morning and nine calls to her in the afternoon. Finally, at 3 o'clock on May 9th, he went to her home and discovered her dead body. He called 911. Now here's where the story takes a bizarre turn. Erica was found with a dust mask covering her mouth and a plastic bag over her head held in place by rubber bands. Straightforward suicide? Dr. Hess took it upon himself to remove pills from her home, including ones he had prescribed for her, and the four-page handwritten letter to whoever and whisked it all away in the trunk of his Mercedes-Benz. On May 13th, police raided the home and office of Dr. Hess with a search warrant. Here's what they found. Small white plastic trash bags in Hess's home were identical to ones found next to Erica's bed. Missy Peterson, Erica's caddy, told the New York Times that she received a text from Erica at 4.03 a.m. on May 9th, stating that Erica was not attending the May 10th tournament in Mobile, Alabama. Worried, Missy texted Erica back but never received a reply. This contradicts reports from Erica's agents that Erica's bags were packed and ready for the trip to Mobile. Her agent said she was acting, quote, normal in the preceding days. For those keeping score at home, that is 33 minutes after Erica called Hess and an hour and 10 minutes before Hess began his marathon of unanswered calls to Erica. Erica's father denied she was suicidally depressed, in financial crisis, or unhappy with her career. On August 24, 2010, the coroner's office ruled Erica's death a suicide. Primary cause of death was listed as asphyxiation. Secondary cause, toxic levels of prescription drugs were a, quote, significant factor. The list of medications in her system is long. Pain relievers like codeine and hydrocodone, tramadol, as well as Xanax, butalbital for migraines. But here's what was not in her system. Alcohol. Remember when Hess said that Erica was drunk when he left her house at 9 p.m.? You aren't the only one. The same day the coroner's report was released, Police arrested Dr. Thomas Hess for obstruction of justice, though police said no foul play was suspected. That November, Hess confessed that he had removed Erica's handwritten suicide note and the prescription pills from her nightstand and that he had that he had given her and hid them in his car. Why did he do it? Though he had never met Erica's family, he said that he did it to spare them the embarrassment. In his 911 call, Hess sounded agitated. I called her yesterday. She was supposed to be leaving for a golf tournament, but she didn't. She picked up the phone and she sounded intoxicated at that time. He said that she had consumed a couple of drinks 
and was sad but not suicidal the previous night. The 911 operator asked Hess if Erica was beyond resuscitation, to which he replied, I'm a doctor. Though he did not reveal that he was her physician, instead he told the operator that he, quote, knew her from the golf club. The operator said she was dispatching police. She instructed Hess to wait outside and to touch nothing. He replied, yes, ma'am. The call had been made from Erica's residence, but when police arrived, Hess was not there. He stopped cooperating with authorities for a bit. He eventually pled guilty to misdemeanor obstruction. He was sentenced to one year's probation, 40 hours of community service volunteering in the medical community, and impulse control counseling. Erica's parents filed a wrongful death suit against Hess, accusing him of taking advantage of their much younger daughter and putting his romantic interest in Erica ahead of her needs as his patient. Hess maintained that his friendship with Erica was flirty but platonic. Although he had prescribed medications for her, he was unaware that she was under a psychiatrist's care for depression. Furthermore, he stated that he had not prescribed any of the medications discovered in Erica's system. May 13, 2014, a jury found Hess had no liability in Erica's death. Hess's lawyer referenced her suicide note in defense of her client. Erica wrote in her note that she had attempted suicide numerous times in the months leading up to May 9th. Isolated and troubled by her lack of success as a pro golfer, Erica wrote, I blame no one for the drugs I take this evening. I'm sad and I don't want to be doing this right now. Sorry for all the people I've hurt doing this, but please understand how miserable and sad I am and that I feel no way of escaping it. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Last Word. Before you go, check out the show notes for links to my author page where you can also check out my writing projects. Next time, I'll talk about Olympic athletes who were gone before 40. In the meantime, I hope you will live each day to the fullest. The Last Word is a true life podcast written and narrated by me, Sarah Faith, copyright 2021. Welcome back to The Last Word, the true life podcast that asks, what's the significance of a person's dying words and their impact on those left behind? I'm your host, Sarah Faith. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Vocal. Be sure to check out the show notes for those links. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with someone else who may enjoy it. This season, I continue profiling gifted individuals who died before 40. Did their extraordinary athletic gifts place them on a path of early demise? In the previous episode, I shared some interesting statistics about the pressure of being a professional athlete and how pro athletes have a separate life expectancy rate from the general public. As always, these topics can be dark and disturbing and may not be suitable for young or sensitive listeners. Yulia Balikina was born April 12, 1984 in Mongolia. She competed on a multinational level and won. In 2012, she represented Belarus's women's track and field team in London. Belarus took home 12 medals. A year later, she hit a snag in her career with a doping violation.
She worked as a children's sports coach during her two-year ban from athletics. One can imagine what plans Yulia had for herself when she was free to compete again in July 2014. Her loved ones and her nation would never have the chance to see her compete again. October 28, 2015, Yulia went missing. A search of her car and home by investigators turned up, quote, traces which together with other collected materials indicate a murder has been committed, unquote. Police arrested her ex-boyfriend, identified only as Dimitri V. He confessed to murdering her but could not recall where he dumped the body. Extensive daily searches of the area near her Minsk home included 300 soldiers and her former teammates. About two weeks later, her body was discovered, discarded in a wooded area near her home, wrapped in cellophane and concealed with moss. Yulia's friends spoke to her about her safety and fears when she wanted to end her relationship with her boyfriend. She came to my office and told me what Dimitri had said. He said, if you break up with me, I will do something that I'll go to jail for. I have no quotes or final words from Yulia. She was only 31. Long distance runner and Oregon native Steve Prefontaine is a legend in the world of running. In 1972, he attended the Summer Olympics in Munich. He came in fourth in the 5,000 meter run. Steve could run a mile in less than four minutes. He was recruited by over 40 colleges. He chose to remain in his home state and attend the University of Oregon. Head coach Bill Bowerman said that Steve was a highly talented athlete. He was certain that Steve would become the world's greatest distance runner. It was not long before Steve was a local celebrity. The crowds chanted, pre, pre, as their hometown hero blazed by. As a joke, fans wore t-shirts that read, stop pre. Steve enjoyed the joke and accepted a shirt from a fan. He wore it for a victory lap. In 1970, he achieved celebrity status when he appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated. He was only 19. Considered an underdog, he began training for the 1972 Summer Olympics in Munich. He set the American record of 13 minutes and 22 seconds in the 5,000 meters at the 1972 Olympic trials in Eugene on July 9th. Steve came in fourth in Munich in September. He ran out of steam with only 10 meters to go. Steve said that that loss was the most disappointed I have ever been. He said he had underestimated the strength of his opponents. They were way too good for me in the end. I felt exhausted chasing them all the way. He returned to university and upped his training to 10 miles every morning. He finished college and began training for the 1976 Montreal Olympics. In 1975, a group of traveling Finnish runners were in Eugene for an NCAA prep meet that Steve won. Steve invited the Finnish team and his teammates to an after party. Around midnight, Steve left the party and dropped off a friend. Then he descended the narrow skyline boulevard. In an extended right curve at the base of the road, his gold MG convertible crossed the center line and jumped the curb. The car flipped and trapped Steve beneath it. He died at the scene. His blood alcohol content was over the legal limit in Oregon. According to the New York Times article from May 31st, 1975, Steve was the third in a string of deaths of American track athletes in less than a week.
Pree's rock is a memorial at the site of his fatal accident. Steve's image and these words are engraved on the stone. For your dedication and loyalty to your principles and beliefs, for your love, warmth, and friendship, for your family and friends, you are missed by so many and you will never be forgotten. The site has become a grassroots shrine and a pilgrimage for athletes and non-athletes around the world. He was Huck Finn and Spikes. He enjoyed communicating with his fans. He was outspoken and rugged, a product of growing up in Oregon logging country. People say I should be running for a gold medal for the old red, white, and blue, but all that bull, it's not gonna be that way he said while preparing to open a pub in Eugene, in addition to his other job as a representative for a foreign shoe manufacturer. I'm the only one who has made all the sacrifices. Those are my American records, not the country's. At a time when track and field was viewed as a maze of statistics, Steve saw it as an art form. Steve said, I'm not afraid of losing, but if I do, I want it to be a good race. I'm an artist, a performer. I want people to appreciate the way I run. His life inspired three films, Prefontaine in 1997, starring Jared Leto, Without Limits in 1998, starring Billy Crudup, and a documentary, Fire on the Track. Nike headquarters named a building after him. Senator Mark Hatfield spoke of their hometown hero, it is tragic when any young person dies and the potential for full productive life is snuffed out. Steve Prefontaine was an Oregon Tiger in the finest tradition, fiercely competitive, confident, and outgoing. He was 24. Do you believe in curses? It has been reported that 18 athletes who competed at the 2012 Summer Olympics in London have died. Is this typical? When we look at the facts, 10,568 people participated in the London Summer Olympics. According to Rob Mastro Domenico, a sports statistician at Global Sports Statistics, the crude mortality rate is 7.89 people per thousand. From this group, we could expect 333 to die over a four-year period. But aren't Olympic athletes young and in superior condition? When we take this into account, the mortality rate drops to seven deaths in four years. Were the London Olympics cursed? It's unlikely. I want to explore another facet of this curse, suicides among professional athletes. Suicide rates in the U.S. have jumped. According to a CBS News article, suicide rates have risen in recent years, increasing 21% from 2000 to 2012 for Americans at least 16 years of age. Perhaps the curse is the epidemic of pressure that leads to tragic early death. Making it to the Olympics is a monumental achievement. Is it worth sacrificing your happiness and life for a chance to earn a medal? Olympic cyclist Kelly Catlin was a triplet. Born the smallest of her siblings, she surprised everyone with her athletic abilities and academic prowess. She was an equestrian, played the violin, and had undergraduate degrees in Chinese and mathematics. She was pursuing a graduate degree at Stanford in computational and mathematical engineering. In an article she wrote for cycling magazine Velo News, Kelly said, 
It's most difficult when you have to take a three-hour final exam the moment you step out of the final round of a team pursuit. Being a graduate student, track cyclist, and professional road cyclist can instead feel like I need to time travel to get everything done, and things still slip through the cracks. This is probably the point when you expect me to say something cliche like, time management is everything, or perhaps you're expecting a nice encouraging slogan like, being a student only makes me a better athlete. After all, I somehow make everything work, right? Sure, yeah, that's somewhat accurate, but the truth is that most of the time, I don't make everything work. At the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio, she and her team earned a silver medal. They went on to win three consecutive championships through 2018. She experienced two serious crashes that left her with a broken arm and a concussion. Her family reported that Kelly awoke with no memory of her head injury and that she seemed changed by it. They said they were aware of her headaches, but had no knowledge of her silent battles with obsessive thoughts and nightmares. January 2019, Kelly attempted suicide, which left her with lung and heart issues. Her sister Christine said she had carefully planned it out and had an email she wrote before that she had scheduled for hours after she was already dead. We got it and thought it was a joke for a minute. Then we called the police. Kelly withdrew from a 2019 international championship meet after her coaches and family persuaded her to rest. Her brother Colin stated that Kelly hated that she had failed at her attempt to end her life. She fell into a deep depression. Two months later, she succeeded. March 7, 2019, she was discovered dead in her Stanford dorm room by her roommate. There were no signs of foul play. Her coach, Stephen McGregor, said that Kelly was exceptional in every aspect of her life. Her family donated her brain to the Concussion Legacy Foundation Brain Bank in Boston University to aid in scientific research. In an interview with the same magazine, Kelly's father, Mark, said, There isn't a minute that goes by that we don't think of her and think of the wonderful life she could have lived. There isn't a second in which we wouldn't freely give our lives in exchange for hers. The hurt is unbelievable. A month before Kelly ended her life, she wrote, The greatest strength you will ever develop is the ability to recognize your own weaknesses and to learn to ask for help when you need it. Let Kelly's story remind us how important it is to check on our fellow humans. My friends, there is no prize for suffering. Help is out there. No one can do it all, and no one should be expected to. A happy heart is the gold medal we award to ourselves. I have one more story to share. Today is September 11th and the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks that left a big, ugly scar on our nation. From the worst of times, heroes emerge. Mark Bingham was the founder of Bingham Incorporated, a public relations firm and a champion rugby player. At six foot four and 225 pounds, he belonged to the San Francisco Fog, a rugby union team. 
He had recently opened a satellite office in New York City. He was in talks with a fellow rugby player on founding a New York-based rugby team he called Gotham Knights. Their plans were interrupted by the events of September 11, 2001. Mark was a passenger on United Airlines Flight 93. He had overslept and almost missed his flight. He was bound for San Francisco to be an usher at his friend's wedding. He ran to gate 17, the last passenger to board. He found his seat and phoned his friend. Thanks for driving to get me. I'm sitting in first class drinking a glass of orange juice. American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the World Trade Center North Tower at 8.46 a.m. At 9.03 a.m., United Flight 175 crashed into the South Tower. At 9.25, United 93, Mark's flight, was over Eastern Ohio when pilots made a distress call. Beware of cockpit intrusion. Bingham and other passengers were herded to the back of the plane by terrorists who had taken over the plane and announced they had a bomb. The plane changed course for Washington, D.C., Bingham, along with Todd Beamer, Tom Burnett, and Jeremy Glick, hatched a plan to take back the plane from the hijackers. With cell phones, the group relayed their plans to loved ones. Mark left a message for his mother. This is Mark. I love you. He finally reached his aunt in California. This is Mark. I want to let you guys know that I love you in case I don't see you again. I'm on United Airlines Flight 93. It's being hijacked. After his mother saw the news, she called Mark back and left two messages. Mark, this is your mom. The news is that it's been hijacked by terrorists. They're planning to probably use the plane as a target to hit some site on the ground. I would say go ahead and do everything you can to overpower them because they are hell-bent. Try to call me back if you can. The men were tall and well-built. Several other passengers made the choice to join the group and fight back. According to the 9-11 Commission report, the cockpit data recorder revealed sounds of crashing and pounding and shouts in English, let's get them. The control wheel was turned hard to the right, which caused the plane to roll on its back and plow into an empty field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The plane was 20 minutes away from DC where it was targeted to be shot down. Bingham's partner, Paul Holm, described him as a brave and competitive person. He hated to lose anything. A friend said Bingham once fought off a mugger with an armed gun. Mark knew how to use his size and would get into situations without thinking about it, which used to amuse us and scare us. I think he knew he was not anyone's idea of a typical gay man. Gotham Knights were born in the wake of the attacks from their website. The inspiration of Mark's life, work, and dedication to the sport of rugby led Scott and other New York City rugby players to meet in late 2001 and establish the Gotham Knights RFC. The Bingham Cup was first held in 2002 in Mark's memory. The first tournament was held in 2002 by Mark's club, San Francisco Fog. Today, the event has grown to be the world's largest amateur rugby tournament with 74 teams and hundreds of players competing worldwide. At a memorial on September 17th, late Senator John McCain spoke in San Francisco. I never knew Mark Bingham, but I wish I had. I know he was a good son and a friend, a good rugby player, a good American, and an extraordinary human being. 
He supported me and his support now ranks among the greatest honors of my life. I wish I had known before September 11th just how great an honor his trust in me was. I wish I could have thanked him for it more profusely than time and circumstances allowed. But I know it now, and I thank him with the only means I possess by being as good as an American as he was. Mark Bingham was 31. I'm your host, Sarah Faith. As always, thank you for the support. Do you have something to share? I would love to read your comments on a future episode. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Vocal. I'll post the links in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for this special episode of The Last Word. I hope you will remember to live each day to the fullest.